If you know me and you know anything about me, then it's probably come across in our conversations that I read a lot of books and I listen to a lot of podcasts and I almost never finish any of them. Uh, Most of the books. The podcasts are easier because they're only an hour. The books take a lot of time. Uh, But I start a lot of books. I guess I should say it that way. I listen to a lot of podcasts. I live about 30 minutes from here and so... My drive to and from work, I fill with listening to people talk because my radio doesn't work in my car, but there's not really any good songs on the radio anyways. So um, so I listen to podcasts. A, a couple, couple months ago, I was listening to one. It was a conversation with a pastor and a theologian, and the, the question that he was asked to answer was, what is the purpose of the church? And so they framed it in a few different categories. What is the purpose of the church for the believer? What role should it play in the life of a Christian? What is the purpose of the church in the life of a lost person? What is the purpose of the church in the world? And somebody asked him, the guy who was doing the interview said, you know, why is it that God saves people but doesn't take them out of the world, but he moves them from the world to the church? What, what role does the church serve in a fallen world? And his answer is going to sound very complicated and very confusing at first, but I want to unpack it for you because it has bearing on our conversation tonight. He responded that the goal of the church is to counter-narrate the world. That's a strange phrase, and I realize it it needs some explaining. So uh, let me begin by saying this, that whatever society you live in, whatever culture you live in, it is forming you. And it is shaping you. And more often than not, it's doing it subconsciously. I mentioned last week, I've got a friend who's a missionary in Scotland. He was raised in Tennessee. He went to Scotland with a southern accent. I listened to him preaching in Scotland a few days ago after a few years of being there. And he now has a Scottish southern accent. And so it's this really strange hybrid of like, you sound Scottish, but also redneck, and so it doesn't, it, do, it doesn't necessarily make sense, but what's happened is the culture and the world he's been in has shaped him, and he hasn't, it's not like he's been trying. It's not like you take like Scottish lessons from Rosetta Stone or anything like that. He's just, he's been there, and he's been shaped by it without his even thinking. In the same way, culture is forming you, and it's forming you around whatever narrative is predominant. So, here, here's a narrative that we as Western Americans have, have probably swallowed, that your happiness is the greatest good. This is a narrative that society has swallowed and that it teaches you to make decisions based off of. It's a marketing ploy. Are you unhappy with your current hairdresser? Are you unhappy with your current car? Are you unhappy with the home you live in? Are you unhappy with any number of things? Well, because your happiness is the highest good, here's how you fix that. And a lot of times, people functioning on that narrative make a lot of really stupid decisions. I'm unhappy with my car, so I'm going to go into $10,000 of debt to buy a new one. The reality is your happiness is not the highest good. Because sometimes the things making you unhappy are good things. Like, maybe you're unhappy because your car isn't as nice as you would want it to be. But your car does everything a car should. If you think that your happiness is the highest good and you buy a new car based on that, you've made a stupid decision. But you've swallowed culture's narrative. And so the point that this pastor is making is that for every narrative that culture spits out, the church's purpose is to counter it. And to say that there is a truer and a more beautiful and a more more profound way of living than what you have been sold by the culture in which you live. Culture has sold us, whether we recognize it or not, a narrative about what dating and marriage and love and romance looks like. And subconsciously, we have swallowed it. Now, some of the things are good. Most of the things are not. 
And so if you were here last week, you know that we've begun about a three-week discussion on what love and manhood and womanhood and marriage and relationships in a Christian context, what they look like. And my purpose here is to counter-narrate the world. To say that you've maybe believed these things about what it means to be a man or to be a woman. And here's why those things are untrue and why there is a truer way of living in light of that. My purpose is to say maybe you believe that this is what dating looks like based on the the narrative that culture sold you. Here's why that is untrue and why it's not even best for human flourishing. Now, I mentioned this last week that that what we want to do, actually Paul lays it out in Romans. He says, don't be conformed any longer to the patterns of this world, but instead be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And so the goal in these next three weeks is for us to not simply change our dating habits, but to change the way we think about it in general. No longer to be put into the mold that culture has given us, but to change the way that we think about relationships as a whole. And the reality is that's probably an easier goal than for me to give you some steps to having a good date, because the reality is the Bible's not interested in answering those questions. Contrary to what BuzzFeed will tell you, the Bible does not give you 10 steps for a great first date. And I... I just, I just don't think it's in there. If you can find it, please let me know. That would help me in the future. But I don't think it's in there. Nor is there a description of how you could best let somebody down easy. Nor is there a description of how long you know before you know that the person is the one. It's, it's just not in there. Scripture's not interested in answering those questions. What it is interested in answering is giving you a foundation for how to treat people with dignity. A dignity higher than the world's understanding of dignity. And I think that if you follow that, you might have a pretty good first date. Uh, In the same way, I think it it describes to you what true love is. Not simply the world's understanding of love, but the, uh, the God... I said the Godhood understanding in my head, but that doesn't make sense. The divine understanding of what love is. And I think that that might go a long way towards you assessing the, the nature of your relationship and its validity. So, so what I'm not doing is giving you steps towards dating. Instead, what I want to do is to begin to think differently about these realities. So scripture forms our opinion on this in three different ways, and that's why we're doing three weeks on it. See, it's perfectly correspondent and symmetrical. So there's, there's three things. We talked about one of them last week. Scripture tells us who it is that we are. The foundation of any relationship is a proper knowledge of who the person you're relating to is and who you are. So last week I talked about kicking down Obama's door and saying, what's up, man? And he's going to go, uh-uh, I don't know who you are. Who do you think you are? Who, do you know who I am? I am Obama, and you're just some weird guy from Tampa. right? But the reality is that we relate to people differently based on who or what they are. You relate to your professor differently than your pastor, different than your pen pal, different than, than any other relationship. You relate to your cousin different than your grandparents, different than your parents, different than your uncle, because it's based on who you are and who they are. Now, below the things that we use to define ourselves, right, as Democrat, Republican, whatever ethnicity or nationality you are, or whatever your preference is on Chinese food, we define ourselves in these ways, but scripture gives us a category below the categories, a way of defining all people. It's found in Genesis 1, 26 and 27, that all human beings are imago Dei, that they bear the image of God. Now, understand that the image has been marred by sin and the fall, but you can smear poop on a painting and it doesn't stop being a painting of what it was originally of. It just smells a little worse and looks a little less pleasant, Right? So, so despite the fact that our sinfulness mars the image 
and, and obscures it, it doesn't change the fact that every person bears the image of God, which means that people fundamentally, no matter how horrible they are to you or to the world around them, are worthy of being esteemed. They're worthy of dignity. There's an inherent respect that comes from one image bearer to another. It's a theme carried throughout scripture. God makes a covenant with Noah. Uh, it's a covenant really giving Noah the, the charge of taking care of creation, but he gives a warning. He says, whoever sheds the blood of a man deserves death because mankind alone is in God's image. No matter how tor- terrible the person was or how mean they were, there's a consequence because people are image bearers. So that's the, the foundation of how we relate to people. You may be awful and miserable and not my best friend anymore, and I don't want to hang out with you, but you bear the image of God. So the next two things, and that's what we'll spend the next two weeks examining. Scripture first tells us who we are. Second, it tells us who we ought to be, and that's what we'll spend these next two weeks on. And it tells us the conditions for human flourishing. And so, tonight, we're going to be talking about specifically the roles which God has given to us as men and women. When we talk about being in the image of God, there's a lot of things that can be drawn out of that. We could say that we're communal, right? Because as Jordan read for us, God looks at Adam, he says, it's not good that man should be alone. Why? Because God exists in community with himself as the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. So we could draw that out of being an image bearer. But when we talk about the Trinity, let's let's use salvation as an example. What we find is not this kind of hodgepodge of the Father and the Son and the Spirit just doing random things that happen to work out Somehow, when we talk about the Trinity, each person within the Trinity being fully God, fully divine, fully all-powerful, omnipotent, fully worthy of worship, they're all doing different things in salvation. So the Father sends the Son. Son doesn't send the Father. Spirit doesn't send the Father. The Father sends the Son. The Son, after being sent, dies on the cross and offers atonement for sin ascends to the right hand of the Father. The Father and the Son send the Spirit. The Spirit takes the work of the Son and applies it to the soul of the believer. Each person in the Trinity is doing something different and functioning in a different role, and it doesn't make any one of them any less God. It doesn't make any one of them any less worthy of worship and praise and glory and honor. And it's out of that God can look at man and woman who is made in his image Men and women equally worthy of dignity and esteem and respect and value. And he can say, I've given to some of you a certain role and to others of you a different role. And it doesn't make either of you any less valuable or any less in my image or any less worthy of uh, love or esteem or respect or value. But just like within God, the persons function in different roles. Within God's people, man and woman, there are different Roles And there are things that God has given to woman that he's not given to man. There's things that God has given to man that he's not given to woman. And there's a whole lot of overlapping ground in the Venn diagram. So tonight, we talk about who it is that we ought to be, specifically for men. So I want to talk about the calling that God has placed on men's lives. And I'm going to apologize in advance if I sound mean or harsh at any point tonight. But I want you to know that I'm doing this out of love a sincere desire that you would grow in grace and a recognition that I've failed in a lot of these things myself. Now, there might be some apprehension from the guys tonight, especially if you're like me, because there is a cultural narrative that has kind of sold us an idea of what men ought to look like. 
And if we could summarize it in one person, it would be that men look like Ron Swanson in all things. <laughs> I, just, I just finished Parks and Recreation, and it's one of my favorite things of all time right now. But there is an understanding that culture sells that manliness and masculinity and manhood looks like shooting guns and hunting for your own food and being able to survive if you were dropped into the Swiss Alps or, or looking like being really good and knowledgeable about sports or being super athletic or all these things. Those are not bad things, right? But I grew up as the guy who didn't play outside because all of the things that required playing outside were things I was bad at. And so I didn't go outside. Consequently, I have a huge vitamin D deficiency right now. <laughs> deficiency right now. Um, I didn't like sports because I wasn't good at sports. I didn't even like sports video games because if I don't want to do it in real life, why would I want to play a video game about it? The only time I would play video games is to do things I can't do in real life, but I wish I could, like slay dragons and cast magic spells on orcs and stuff like that. So, so I grew up with inclinations towards things that culturally would not be considered manly. I like music. You know what? I think Emily Dickinson has some really great poems. I, sorry, I guess. Not sorry. Um... <laughs> Up until recently, I wasn't very good at outdoorsy things, although I've been working on that and doing some backpacking with my friends. Uh, I probably couldn't go hunting because I would feel bad for whatever I shot, even though if one of you shot it and brought it to me, I would gladly eat it. So, so my, I recognize there's some anxiety there because I think that some of us here have felt like, you know what, I'm not really a manly man because I don't, I'm not Ron Swanson, right? But I want you to understand going into this that the standards that scripture lays out for manhood look nothing like the cultural expectations. And while those cultural things are good, and if you fall into that category, that's awesome, and you should teach me how to forage for food and do cool stuff like that, uh, that's not the biblical expectation of manhood. Now, uh, there's another, perhaps, apprehension this evening, and I think it might come from the women that are in the room, because the reality is that when most college and career ministries have these kind of conversations, they tend to separate the two. So, women, you go over there, and men, you go over here, and we'll talk about manhood and womanhood separately, and then you guys can come back and compare notes, maybe. And I don't think that's bad. In fact, I, I know, I think some of our small groups have done that before, and I've been in college groups that have done that, and it's been wildly beneficial. And so it's not a bad thing, but I don't think it's best for tonight, and here's why. Here's the reason that I, that I want the women of this ministry in this room. First and foremost, I want you to hear the Bible's expectation of men and to not settle for less than that in your dating relationships. I want you to know what scripture expects, and I want you to expect it. Because I've known many wonderful women who have either not known and made an error out of ignorance, or have grown so discouraged that they slacken their grip on the rope, and it has ended in shipwreck and misery. The second reason is that I want you to hear Scripture's expectation, and I want you to demand it of the men in this room. Now, that's not, that's not to say that you should be really mean about it and go, you suck. That's, that's not what I'm saying. But I want you to know what Scripture calls men to, and I want you to call the men in this room to it. I want you to demand it of the men here, because it's what Scripture demands. So with that in mind, we go to Ephesians chapter 5, verses 25 through 28. This comes in the context of a very lengthy dialogue about marriage 
um, and we'll kind of tackle that in more length next week. But 25 through 28, uh, let me read it for us, and then we will dive into the text. It says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ has loved the church, gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. Now, you have likely just heard that and gone, well, I'm not married, so deuces. But here's why I think that this is a text that has bearing on manhood itself and not just married manhood. Uh, First and foremost, Paul is addressing married men. But he's using an illustration that carries a significant amount of weight. He says, men, your relationship with your wife should be like Christ's love and relationship with the church. Now, there's going to be three degrees that we need to pass through to apply this to men in general. The first is we have to ask the question, okay, if I should love my wife like Christ loves the church, how does Christ love the church? And so we ask that question. This is the top tier. How does Christ love the church? Okay, based on that, how does it mean that I should love my current or future potential spouse. And then based on that, and this is what we bring it down to this evening, what does that mean about the person that I should just be in general, the kind of man that I should be, generally speaking? Because here's what would be really dangerous for you, is to look at this text tonight and say, well, I'm not married, so when I get married, I'll keep this in mind. And I'll work on it when I get married. I've got a friend whose father is an alcoholic. And... I would venture to say that he probably developed those habits young, probably when he was in middle school or high school, and I'm sure that he told himself the entirety of the time, you know what, when I get married, I'll clean up my act, I'm going to sow my wild oats for the time being, and then when marriage happens, I'll settle down, be a family man. Marriage happened, and the alcoholism didn't change. Then his wife got pregnant, and I'm sure he told himself the same thing. Well, I got nine months to get this out of my system. And then I'll, I'll sober up and I'll be a good father and I'll be committed and I'll, I'll, you know, I'll be dedicated to this. And the nine months passed and he has a daughter and it hasn't changed. And we're now about 24, 25 years into the life of that daughter and it still hasn't changed. So if we look at the call of scripture and it says that when you enter into this, this is how you should be. Our response should not be, well, I'll put it off until indefinite future date when that happens. Our response should be, how do I cultivate these things in me now? How do I become that kind of a person now? Because the minute that you like it and put a ring on it, these things aren't just going to spring up out of you. You're not just going to all of a sudden become these things the minute that you say, I do. You should be going into that relationship already having cultivated these things about you. And if you are the kind of person, and and I believe there are people like that in this room who God has called to celibacy, the expectation is not simply that these things would be the disposition of a married Christian man. These are the expectations of godly men, period. This is God's expectation for men. And it should be there whether you're married or you're not. Whether you intend to get married or you never plan on getting married. So we ask the first question, 25, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. How does Christ love the church? So there's a lot of things we could say about this, and we don't have the time, uh, nor do I have the ability to expound on all of it. 
But it's interesting to me when we talk about the Christian life, especially as Protestants, we always talk about the relationship between faith and works. And one of the things that we as Christians believe is that your salvation is not based on your works. That's not to say that you shouldn't live a righteous life, but your salvation is based on Christ's work and his finished work, the things he has done for you, Christ's labor on your behalf. So how does Jesus love the church? And what does God expect of men? This will be on the screen behind me. I'm paraphrasing it because I wrote it differently in my notes. But God's first expectation of men, if they're to love their wives as Christ loved the church, is that they would be a people uh, who labor and who serve. That men would be people who labor and serve. Because the reality is that Christ labored and labors on behalf of the church to her benefit. Every moment of Christ's sinless life was a work that would be attributed to the church when she placed her faith in him and the Holy Spirit applied his work to her. And Jesus didn't stop working on the church's behalf when he ascended into heaven. If you read Hebrews, it tells us that Jesus ever lives to make intercession on your behalf. So Jesus has not stopped working for the church upon ascension. He continues to intercede before the Father for the church. Jesus labors, and that is how he loves the church, which means that husbands should labor in their marriages. But, but I want to take that a step back to ground level. Men, God demands of you more than laziness. In fact, Jordan read for us a huge portion of Genesis, and there's a reason why, because we're going to jump back and forth between it this evening. But what you notice in the beginning of the text that Jordan read is that after Adam is formed, God places him in the garden to work and keep it. Now, in casual joking, we lay a lot of things at the feet of Adam as evangelicals. And sometimes it's warranted and sometimes it's not. So, car crash, darn you, Adam. Um, Click tracks, which I hate because I can't play on beat, but darn you, Adam. we, We blame all these things on Adam and it's mostly joking, right? But here's something that scripture doesn't even lay at the feet of Adam and his fall and his sin. Work is there before the fall. God works to create. He puts Adam into a perfect universe and he says, work. So work is not an evil that entered the world post-sin. Work is endemic to what it means to be a man made in the image of God. It is the expectation that God sets for Adam. So men... You should be cultivating skills that don't include beating Sauron in Shadow of Mordor on PS4. I say that because it's a current thing going on in my life. Your skill set and your labor should go beyond how many achievements you've unlocked on Xbox 360. Your skill set and your work ethic should go beyond being able to slam back a whole bag of Doritos in less than 30 minutes. You should be a person who works and who labors. God's expectation of men is that they would not be lazy, but that they would have a strong work ethic. Not simply in their occupation, but in all of their life, that they would be cultivating and growing and laboring. That doesn't mean that you kill yourself. It doesn't mean that you work 9,000 hours a week. But laziness is not an option for men of God. And girls, that's not something that you should settle for in the man that you date or you marry. 
It's, it's not an option. Christ loves the church by laboring for her. You, as a man made in God's image, have to be a man who works. Now, this gets into some, some interesting kind of dialogue, and, and there's this question that kind of gets thrown around in a lot of conservative circles, or should, should the man be the primary breadwinner, and should the wife work? I don't think there's anything wrong with women having a job. I don't think there's anything wrong with women having a career and working, but they shouldn't have to work because the man won't do it. Uh, they, they shouldn't have to work because the husband is too busy doing nothing. If, if the work that the man's given himself to is not enough to pay the bills, I understand that. that there's no sin in that. I recognize it. It might be, and, and there's nothing wrong with your wife making more money than you. No, nothing wrong with that. Amen. Yeah. I don't have a wife to do that. But, but I'm sure that that's a, that's a relief. Th- this is not a sin. But your wife's well-offness is not an excuse for your laziness. Ah, <laughs> oh, the amens. I love it. And you don't suddenly develop a strong work ethic after the wedding day. You develop and you cultivate that now. And even if somehow you marry into an insane amount of money, I'm talking trust fund gazillionaire, it is not licensed for you to be lazy because God expects of you labor because Christ labored for his church and you have to cultivate that in yourself. Now, there's a second part to it in the point that, that God expects men to labor and to serve. And I think that, that these are kind of, they kind of flow in and out of one another. Uh, and that Christ labors for the church, but he labors in service of the church that she would be uh, holy and that she would be able to have peace and to rest in his work. But, but you see this in Jesus' ministry. In the Gospel of John, during the Last Supper, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus serves the church, even as he is the head of the church. It's what we might call servant leadership. So there is this expectation of men, if we are to be like Christ in our marriages, but just to be like Christ in general, there needs to be not just a strong work ethic, but a willingness to serve, even when you might receive nothing in return. There's some tragic statistics that I pulled up this afternoon. The typical U.S. congregation draws an adult crowd it's about 61% female, 39% male. And in midweek activities, whether they be service or Bible studies or soup kitchens, it's 70 to 80% female participants and less than 20% men. Here's what discourages me greatly. Those numbers don't seem any different here at Impact. Because I see the list after we offer service projects and it is 70 to 80% female and 20 to 30% male. And back when we used to pack up chairs, I watched pregnant women do work while the men sat in the back and talked. This should not be. Because Christ's expectation of the church, and especially of men in the church, is that they labor and they serve. I've fallen short in this. I haven't done a great job. So I, I'm, I'm confessing as well as admonishing men of this ministry, labor and serve. The text goes on. Not only did he love the church and give himself up for her, it says that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by washing, by the washing of the water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself with splendor, 
without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. The second thing that Christ does when he loves the church, and it sets an expectation for men, is that Christ loves the church by providing spiritual leadership and spurring the church onto holiness. Within the context of the home and within the context of the family, there is this expectation within Scripture that men would be the spiritual leaders, even as Christ is the head spiritually of the church. I am not the head of the church. Mark is not the head of the church. Uh, the, any wonderful leader, Billy Graham is not the head of the church, as great as he is, or whoever you might think of and esteem. Christ is the head of the church, and ultimately Christ sets the course and the direction. There's an ex- expectation in Scripture that the men of God in their homes would be the spiritual leaders of those homes. But... Here's the problem, is that you don't all of a sudden get married and become a spiritual leader. That has to be something that you cultivate now. And so men, let me ask you this question. What does your prayer life look like on a daily basis? Are your prayers reactionary? Are they, God, I have to pass this test, please help me. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, I'll get the Trinity in there and hope that that works. Are are they... Are they selfish? Now, there's nothing wrong with praying for needs, but but are all of your prayers requests for selfish things? Is your prayer life selfless at all? Because there's an expectation, if you are to step into marriage, that you be able to pray for your family and not just for your immediate gratification. Take that a step further. The expectation of men being spiritual leaders. How well do you know Scripture? How well do you know the Bible? I don't expect you to be a Bible scholar. I really don't. But, but if you were to be presented with a situation, could you provide biblical wisdom and counseling on that situation? Or would you kind of just go, oh, I don't know, don't be mean. And that's my answer. And I would take it another step. How well do you know theology? I, I don't expect you. I don't expect you to be some Charles Spurgeon. I don't expect you to be some kind of a theological genius. But the reality is that today... Most men, and I'm not just talking about us in this room, I'm talking about 40, 50, 60-year-old men. They couldn't explain the difference between justification and sanctification. And 100 years ago, a child could have done that. So there needs to be a depth to your walk with God and not an expectation that when you jump into marriage, the depth will just kind of magically appear there. Jordan read for us from an account that we would call as Christians the fall. The fall of man. And I want you to notice that every time from that point on that it's referenced, even though Eve is the one that takes the apple, even though Eve is the one that eats from it first, Scripture lays that sin at the feet of Adam. Because Adam is the one that failed to be the spiritual leader in that relationship. Not because Eve is sinless, not because Eve isn't guilty, but because there's a twofold problem there. The last two questions I asked you how well do you know Scripture? How well do you know theology? Adam fails at both of these things in the fall. Satan comes to Eve, and he says, did God really say? And then he proceeds to misquote what God actually said. Adam's response should have been, no, God didn't really say that. But he doesn't know God's word. Even though he was there to hear it, he doesn't know it. The next thing Satan says is, if you do this, you will not surely die, but you will be like God. Adam's response should have been, we are already like God. We're in his image. It's a failure of theology. Adam doesn't know. He's abdicated his role. And there's a very important thing at the end of the text. It says that she gave the fruit to her husband 
who was with her. He sat there and he did nothing because he abdicated the role of being a spiritual leader. He didn't know God's word. He didn't understand the theology of what it meant to be in the image of God. And because he didn't have those things, scripture lays that sin at his feet and not Eve's. Men, understand this, that, that should you get married and have children one day, you'll stand accountable before God for the kind of church you bring your family to. You'll stand accountable before God for the kind of teaching that you present to your children. You won't necessarily be accountable if your children hear all the right things and go in the wrong direction. But if you teach error, Jesus has this really crazy saying that most people don't talk about. He says, for those who would cause these children to sin, it's better that a millstone be tied around their neck and they'd be thrown into the sea. Because Jesus expects people to train up their children in godliness. And the greatest weight of that falls on you guys as men. So this, this is not an exhaustive list. I recognize that. It's not exhaustive. But I want you to understand that, that as men in this ministry, that God expects us to be a people who labor, a people who serve, and a people who provide spiritual leadership. That is what God expects of men. Now, I said there's three things Scripture teaches, who we are, who we ought to be, which is what we're on, and the conditions for flourishing. There's this crazy thing that has played out in statistics. It's when men step into that role, flourishing in the church happens. Let me read for you a few statistics about that. A study commissioned in the 90s says that children who grow up in families where the fathers don't attend church, 60% of those kids will not remain Christians past the point of them leaving their parents' house. On the opposite side of that, families or children that grow up where the mother doesn't attend church but the father does, 44% of them will remain dedicated Christians the rest of their life. Study from Hartford Seminary found that the presence of involved men was statistically correlated with church growth, health, and harmony. It went on to say that teens with religious fathers are more likely to say that they enjoy spending time with their dad and that they admire him. Because this is how God has ordained for things to work. That men would be spiritual leaders, that they would labor and not be lazy, and that they would serve. Now, that's not to say that there isn't a middle to that Venn diagram where that expectation is on women as well. There are women who are powerhouses of the faith, and it's awesome. See Cindy Perkins from our women's ministry as an absolute beast in that. She is awesome. And that's not to say that women aren't expected to be servants either. Nor is it to say that women are are cool with being lazy and that they get off the hook free. But God lays the weight most heavily on men and says, you are in my image and I have given you this role. And I hope that we are a ministry that produces godly men like that. Let's pray. Father, you expect much of us that goes beyond what the world expects. God, a lot of this is not doable by our own strength, but by us relying on your spirit. So I pray that you make us a people who do rely on your spirit. God, I pray that you teach us as men to love you more fully. God, I pray that you teach us not just as men, but as men and women in, men and women in your image 
to honor you with the things that we do and the way that we keep your commandments. God, we've all fallen short in these areas. This is not a time for a lack of grace, but it is a time for us to take stock of ourselves, Lord, and to step up to what you have called us to. So Lord, I pray that you, by your spirit, empower us to do that. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.